Marcus Sedgwick is a multi-award winning author with over 40 published titles to his name. In 2001, his first novel, Floodland, won the Branford Bose Award, a prize the best debut novel for children published in the UK each year. His novel for older children, Midwinter Blood, won him the Michael L. Prince Award, America's most prestigious book prize for writing for young adults. His books have been shortlisted and nominated for over 40 other awards, and Marcus also keeps busy illustrating some of his own titles. At a recent event held at the CLPE in London, Marcus spoke with Nicky Gamble about his latest title, Snowflake AZ, a timely contemporary novel challenging ideas around health, our own and our planets, and the stigma that persists around illness, which draws on his own experiences of chronic fatigue syndrome following his diagnosis six years ago. I wonder to begin, um, this is a book that seems to already, even though it's recently published, have garnered quite a lot of attention. I wonder if you could start by just setting the book up for us, telling us a little bit about the story. Yeah, uh, I guess the simplest way of explaining this book is to say it's a book about what it is to be ill, but not to be believed, Mm. i.e. you're sick with something, but few people will take you seriously that you are actually ill. And that is, uh, the reason I wrote this book is because that is something that's happened to me over the last six years of my life. And it's also what happened with the group of people upon whom this book is based, who are a group of real people who live in the desert in Arizona. And there are many communities like this, uh, but this is one, they're perhaps the most famous community, and they live outside of a town called Snowflake, Arizona, which immediately appealed to me, that kind of uh, a strange name. And the name instantly comes about because it's it, the town was founded by two Mormons 150 years ago or something, Mr. Snow and Mr. Flake, mm-hmm. and that was how they named their town. And outside Snowflake is a group of people who have what's called multiple chemical sensitivity or environmental illness, and these are people, I think the simplest way of understanding it is that these are people who feel they have become allergic to something in the modern world, something like a paint or a pesticide or pollution of some kind or a glue or something that now triggers uh, illness in them Mm -hmm. and they're massively fatigued and they have headaches and rashes and and all those kind of symptoms that often go with sort of chronic illness Uh, muscle pain joint pain that kind of stuff but the vast majority of doctors believe that it is at best psychosomatic and at worst that they're faking it and that's what interested me and I think that's the kind of fundamental thing in this book I think it's something that we all recognise from the very earliest age as children is that sense of injustice of you know something and someone won't believe you. Mm. That's what drives this book, I think. In a moment, we're going to hear a little bit from uh, the novel. And there's a sense in which a lot of this is created by our modern way of living. Mm -hmm. But these illnesses, these inexplicable illnesses, have been around for years and years. We, you know... um, since the days of the Bible and before when people couldn't walk and then suddenly they'd get up and walk. These are probably very similar Mm -hmm. sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think you only have to look at the history of medicine, even over the last hundred years, or even perhaps going uh, back a little bit further, but the number of illnesses that were thought to be essentially possession by demons <laughs> in the case of something like epilepsy or, or um, you know, moving on to something like tuberculosis, which was only really fully understood about 100 years ago. And, that, you know, these are all things that we now completely understand, totally accepted, fully understood. Mm-hmm. We know how to cure them uh, or treat them, at least. And I, I feel like things like chronic fatigue syndrome, which you and I both have, are the kind of 
thing that we're just waiting to understand exactly mm. what's going on. It's just our bad luck that we happen to be having mm. them now. And uh, you know, th- the, the the particular connection that I find interesting in things like uh, tuberculosis, for example, is that back in the nineteenth century, it was believed there was a type, a personality type, who was more prone to get tuberculosis than anyone else. And if you read the manuscripts of the period, which I've done, there's a long list of the type of person who was predominantly thought that women would get it. Wearing corsets would give it to you. If you were an effeminate man, you were more likely to get it. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and I mention that because almost one of the first things my doctor said to me when she gave me this, I think it's a non-diagnosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, but she gave me mm. what she called a diagnosis of yeah. chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, she said, you know there's a certain type of person who gets it. And I don't know about you, but I just took that at face value when she said that to me. And it was perhaps four years later, I actually went and looked at the research and discovered there's actually no basis for that. What was it like? What was the type of person? Because I also had that, but for me, the type of person was a perfectionist. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, a perfectionist, a high achiever, a a warrior, somebody who never stops working, um, all those things. And I said, when I finally went and looked at the the evidence for this, there's kind of one disputed paper that talks about this link with perfectionism and it's bad methodologically and and Mm. it's far from proven that there is a type of person who gets uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. But that thing of, of being ill and then people telling you you're faking it or imagining it at, at best is um, a double cruelty. I yeah. Think. yeah. One of the things that you do mention in the book is how people often walk away. Do you think that's true, that it is really hard for people who live with sufferers? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The hashtag invisible illness is used a lot now about these kind of illnesses, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and that kind of stuff. But if we're invisible, people who care for us and support us are even more invisible. Um, and one of the saddest things about Snowflake was I think I didn't meet any couples, I just met individuals, mm. um, many of whom their own families had basically told them they were lying, making it up, disowned mm. them. Uh, there was a, a lady there whose daughter hadn't spoken to her for 18 years. Mm. How healthy <clears throat> did you think it was for this community to live together in that way? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I think... Um, we were talking about this book at the Edinburgh Festival. And I was talking with Charlie Fletcher. I don't mm. know if you read his new book uh, yet, "Boy and His Dog at the End of the World." Oh, it's, a, it's again because it's you know a dystopian future, apocalyptic, you know, post-societal collapse novel. And my mine's kind of the inversion of that. But you know, there was a relationship between the two books, and I could see why we've been put on the same event together. Uh, and we were trying, we had this discussion came up about which book was the bleaker, <laughs> because on the face of it. Um, his seemed to be much more in the mould of yes, the world's ended, but we're able to have a you know exciting adventure and you know things work out. And uh, although there's some you know scenes of cruelty in his book, and on the face of it, I was feeling mine was bleaker. But in the course of the discussion, I kind of realised actually my book is full of people being nice to each other, mm-hmm. and there is there's kind of one minor character who's a bit obnoxious, but otherwise. There's no kind of baddie in this book. There's no antagonist. The antagonist is is Mm. the poisonous world Mm. that we've created around it. Mm. So therefore, you could say it's a very positive book because it shows how in the darkest, worst moments, people will support each other. Mm. And particularly because they're mostly all on their own. This Mm. kind of... And there's no formal structure there. Mm. They just have this informal network of, you know, the ones who can do a bit more go shopping for the ones who can't. Mm. And it's really beautiful. Yeah. 
It's interesting because one of the questions I had was about whether you were an optimist or a pessimist. It was quite hard to tell at points through the book. And then I thought, but actually you have named, and I don't know, again, whether it's deliberate, but you named your main character Ash. Mm -hmm. And in Celtic tradition, the ash tree is the symbol of health. Well, I did not know that. There you are. Brilliant. I'm going to claim I know that. (laughs) From here on. I guessed you would have known because it no, seems no, no, no. a very you kind of thing. But are you yeah. an optimist or a pessimist? Uh, I, think? I, uh, I think I'm still trying to work that out, perhaps. Mm. And I think probably on the surface, I would instinctively say I'm a pessimist. Of course, I think most pessimists reply and say I'm a realist, don't they? And mm. um, this is a thing, I think it's something that has bothered me my whole life because I can remember the precise point in my life. I think I was about seven. I could, was on a car journey, going to school one morning. I was sitting in the car, on the back left. We were at a junction on the way just before the school and I suddenly decided it would be better to be a pessimist in life so that you were never disappointed. Never disappointed. And I just think <laughs> these awful things, you know, the, the things we decide from somehow, what, who knows what influence at that young age and then mm. it can, it can colour your whole life if you're not careful. But I think probably the, the true answer is I'm still trying to work that out and, mm-hmm. uh, and not be affected by everything that you decided for yourself or even things that were decided for you Mm. before you were even too young to think about them Mm. things that got put upon you Mm. Uh, and whether you can break out of that is Mm. is the kind of challenges in life that I think many people don't even realise they're fighting against and you see people who are desperately unhappy and they don't know why they're unhappy Mm. and I think that's one of those things is um, and again I have to give credit to my wife for opening my eyes a bit on you know and actually there's also a lot of scientific research mm. that now shows it's better to live optimistically. You are healthier if you mm. live optimistically, no matter mm. the ups and downs that everyone has mm. in life. Yeah. Can we have a reading from yes, the sure. novel? OK, here we go. Only other thing that comes back to me that first afternoon, that very first afternoon when we got back from seeing Dr B, I sat on the porch staring at the desert while around me, Mona and Bly and Finch were having a discussion. They weren't discussing me or being sick, I was no great news. They'd all been through what I'd been through, and not just once, but hundreds of times. Hundreds of people who doubted that they were sick, and I do mean hundreds. Doctors, friends, family. Family. I had noticed, without really understanding, that there were no couples in Snowflake. Not in the 40s, I mean. No families. Everyone was alone. As the time went by, I got to learn why that was. Relationships don't survive having someone with MCS. They just don't. So no, Mona and Bly and Finch weren't talking about me, they was talking about a film. They'd all watched it over at Detlef's one evening. He had a TV set behind a glass wall which he said made it safer to do. I'd never heard of it, but it was some horror film, and they was talking about whether it was scary or not. Bly said it wasn't, and Finch said it was, but he didn't know why for sure, and Mona said it was scary, and she did know why. She said it went like this. She said whether you found it scary or not, well, it all came down to whether you was paying attention or not. At the start of the film, she said, there's a whole lot of scenes of people talking about the legend of this witch, a witch that people say lived in the woods nearby. And at the very end of the film, when the horror finally comes along, the final scene, well, it's one of the things that somebody at the start was talking about. But it only makes sense if you remember that bit, so it's only scary if you was paying attention. Then Finch said, yeah, that's it, that's right, Mona. Well, Bly just sat staring into space, and I guess he was feeling told off for not paying attention. But I could see he saw Mona had a point, because he said... Maybe life's like that. And everyone said, life's like what? And he said, maybe life's only scary if you're paying attention. 
Finch asked Bly what he meant, and Bly said how maybe it was only when you started to learn about the world, like he had from Mona, that it got scary. Like before, all he thought about was being a police officer. That made sense to him, and it was all and everything he wanted. Then Mona got him thinking about other stuff, such as maybe you could think about glyphosate giving everyone cancer, or kidney problems, or destroying people's guts. Or maybe you could think about antibiotic resistance, which is how all our wonderful antibiotics are starting to not work anymore, how bad bacteria are evolving faster than we can make new drugs that will kill them. How very soon we'll be back in the 19th century when simple things could kill you, like setting on damp grass or wearing corsets. Or maybe you could think about those same antibiotics, the ones we're so precious about, and then read about how they don't only kill the bad bacteria, but the good ones too, the ones we need to be healthy, that live in our gut and do good things for us, like help make serotonin, which is what keeps you happy and what you don't got enough of if you're depressed. Or maybe you could think about all the plastic in the world's oceans, how they were saying now that every single fish that's caught has teeny eeny particles of plastic in it that you're eating and then come to that how all the sea salt in the world has plastic in it too and most of all the drinking water supplies too or maybe you could think about how all the insects were suddenly dying on account of pesticides used in farming and how insects were important for the whole chain of life on earth and heck did he mention climate change yet did he mention that the climate was changing and that we was all gonna fry then everyone stared out into the desert for a long time till finch said screw it you got any beer mona I could sure use a beer. <laughs> oh my gosh. And uh, just reading uh, the novel, it's evident that you yourself have read extensively and read a lot of science, read a lot of good science. Yeah. So is that a long-standing interest or was that specifically to research for this book? I mean, I guess I've always been interested in science. Uh, I did science A-levels, funnily mm-hmm. enough, and, and didn't, didn't do English until I did it as an evening class uh, after university. I've always had a kind of, yeah, layperson's interest in science, but particularly since I became ill and I had a lot of time on my hands. And I, to start with, it was I was trying to find out what was wrong with me and reading papers about this and that and the other. But then I started noticing that although you're you're focusing on an individual sickness, you can't help start seeing the links to mm. what I might call global sickness. And so this, you know, the fundamental thing I'm trying to get across in the book is mm. whatever we put out into the world will eventually come back to us, whether mm. that's good or bad. Mm. And I think it, it is a very big stage. Although it's set in just this one place in Arizona, the stage moves from the personal and it gets progressively more global as you go through. And actually, that's the impression that I was left with Mm -hmm. at the end, Mm -hmm. the kind of big scale. Uh, A couple of things I wanted to ask you about the writing. Um, I want to talk to you about how an idea, because what we've talked about so far is an idea rather than a story. Mm -hmm. So where did the seeds for the story come from? I mean, the first thing I I did I didn't really I really did not want to write a book about being sick. I mean, when mm. I first became ill, the last thing I wanted to do was even be ill. Never mind think about being ill, and thirdly, not write about being ill. But eventually, it became obvious that I was going to have to because it was all that was in my head. Um, and then uh, I wasn't intending even to write about the people in Snowflake. I went out there because I had the opportunity to at the end of an American book tour, and I just wondered if what was happening to them looked like anything like what had happened to me. Um, and then while I was there, this guy who's who's in the book in disguise said to me, you should write a book about us people. And I'm like, I don't think I'll do that. But it kind of stuck. Anyway, um, I was trying to write a book where not very much happens. I've all, you know, you know, my books 
often a lot of my books have got a really tight plot going on and mm. that's really not what happens in this book you know mm. it's a, a series of incidents and events it's the other thing I should mention uh, is, that, to be honest, is that this book is um, what we fancily call paying homage to, but we can be honest, is stolen from my favourite novel, which is Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Right. And that's because when I first became ill, I um, wasn't doing very much at all, and um, I think it was probably it was some point within the first year, and I really was not coping with it at all well at that time. And a friend of mine, Thomas, said... Uh, you should read all those books you've always wanted to read and never had. And Magic Mountain was one of those books that I'd always intended to read because I liked Death in Venice and I knew that it was mm. had some connection to Death in Venice, but I didn't know what. So I read this book and it's seven, eight hundred page novel. It's an extraordinary work. It's now my favourite book. I'm completely obsessed with it. So on some scale, some of the incidents and some of the structural things are referencing what Thomas Mann mm. did in, mm. in the Magic Mountain. Um, there is a little bit of a story. Um, of the story between there's a love story. there's a love story between Ash and Bly um, and the way that plays out and there are some other subplots going on with mm. other, some of the other characters and then where Ash ends up at the end of the mm. book I guess we don't want to talk too much about the ending mm. even though our audience here is mainly uh, teachers and student teachers mm-hmm. um, but you've talked about connections with other books I had echoes of Heart of, Heart of Darkness mm-hmm. when I read Okay. The end of that book. Okay, that's in what way? That's interesting. Well, the search for Kurtz. Okay. At the end, mm-hmm. it just okay. made me feel a little okay. bit like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, that's nice. I just that came about. So there's this character called Jean Pollu in the mm. book, and uh, he's based on someone I never met, mm. who was the first person who, who he was uh, an engineer. He became sick. This is in real life. And he decided to move away from his job and go and build this house in the middle of the desert. Um, and then he built another house further out because they built some power lines near the first line. He uh, first house he built, and he he, he feels he's very strongly affected by electromagnetic mm. magnetic radiation. Um, and I never met him. I, I kind of, but everyone told me stories about him, and he right, it was exactly mm. that of the Mister Kurtz mm. thing of this. Uh, and I love that. I mean, all sorts of stories where. It's something that is quite tricky to pull off, being told about a character mm. for a long time before you meet them. Mm. And another example, an entirely ridiculous example, is the film In Bruges, mm. where you hear about Ari, the Rafe Fiennes character, and you only meet him about halfway through the film, but you've heard all these little hints and rumours, so then by the time you get there, you, you know, it's, mm. a, it's a fun thing. Yeah. I mean, you've talked about your books being tightly structured, tightly plotted, um, and certainly when I read them, I mean, they're, they're, the thing that strikes you is how different they all are, but within that there's usually pattern plays a really big mm. part. And in this novel, it's the way that you've titled your chapters, yeah. A to Z. Mm-hmm. So that comes about because it's just one of those things that's happened with so many books that these lovely little chance things that occur when you're putting together or the ideas are coming to you for a book... And having then finally decided I was going to write about this bunch of people in Snowflake, Arizona, mm. which is A to Z, as we said at the start, uh, that I should write an alphabetical book mm. with chapters A to Z. Um, and I'd like those things. I've done other books where there have been little games like that, where it can seem like the tiniest, most arbitrary thing that you're working to. Um, so, for example, 
in She is Not Invisible thing with the first word of each chapter builds up to make a sentence. So when I was writing each chapter, I had the first word, regardless of what else I was going to say in that chapter. And, you know, it sounds silly, but it is really literally like the mark on a piece of paper that enables you to doodle a whole picture, whereas a blank canvas mm. um, can be quite intimidating. But then I started hunting around and trying to, you know, some of the letters I already had very early on and some I had to work a bit harder on. And some of the hardest letters, the, the X's and the Z's, came to me really very uh, fortuitously, very appropriately. They um, fitted very nicely, yeah, didn't they? <laughs> that, well, I always remember when I was a children's bookseller, when you know, because the number of A to Z pitch books mm. that we published, and you always kind of winced in, to find out what the X would be. Oh, it's mm. another xylophone, mm. you know. Um, so I was, I was keen to find something that was really appropriate to the book uh, for, for those kind of letters. Mm. So then it's a sort of to and fro symbiotic process mm. of, of you tweaking it and things falling into place. When you're dealing with chemicals, you get you've got quite a lot of <laughs> <laughs> scope. There. That is true. Yeah, I could have could have had um, that. Do you think it's mainly for yourself? It's a kind of playful thing that helps you, or are you doing it for the reader? Do you think? Uh, I don't know. I think um, the first thing to say about that is you have to do everything to please you. Mm. And uh, I know this always sounds very arrogant, but I firmly believe you have to please yourself. And if you don't please yourself, you could write a book where you literally please no one in the world. Mm. Whereas if you write a book that pleases you, at least you know you've pleased one person, and then you can hope that there might be someone else who appreciates those ideas. Sometimes they, Some of the games I played internally in books have literally been for myself, because they're so hidden and so private, and no one probably will ever spot them. And then more recently, I've decided to make some of these things a bit more explicit. And I think that you know, if some readers spot them, that's lovely. Mm. And if another reader mm. doesn't spot them, it really doesn't matter. Mm. I hope it shouldn't matter mm. anyway. Oh, one of the great strengths of the book is the narration and the character of Ash mm-hmm. and how he develops and how he reveals the story, uh, building our anticipation of what's to come, looking backwards. Um, and the voice seems to flow as though it came intuitively. Mm. It's this kind of a, like an American novel. Yeah. Um, I guess it's it's more work than you would imagine is it oh writing a voice Mm. like that yeah um the voice of ash took a lot of work ash came about over a really long period of time after i decided to write this and i was toying with who ash could be and how to portray them um and i very quickly realized for a technical reason that we may or may not talk about that it needed to be in the first person so then that gives you the voice straight up front um, my wife's American, we spend a lot of time in the States, I've travelled a f- little bit, not a lot, but a little bit in, in some of the southern states doing book tour things in the past, Texas, and, and uh, I've been to New Mexico and um, other places, and a lot of the voices of the people I spent that time with in Snowflake um, wasn't very long, but I think as a writer you're kind of a sponge and it doesn't take, you don't have to spend very long with someone to kind of absorb something like that. And then I made Ash a kind of mishmash of some of those people that mm. I'd met down there. But it did it did take a lot of work. The first draft, um, both my editor here and in the States, mm. really weren't enjoying how it was working. Mm. And I had I, I think I'd done that thing. All voices in books are artificial. Mm. And actually, we talk about realism, but it, it's a mistake to talk about realism because it's fiction and it doesn't work the way real life works and things don't sound the way real life sounds. And... I've done the, I, I, I made the same mistake actually with another book that I know you know, The Foreshadowing. Mm. I'd made it too realistic and then I had to kind of pull it back to a kind of readable mm. version of it. Mm. Um, so that's what we spent a long time doing in the second and mm. third draft. And then we got more American readers to look at it. So um, mm. we really tried to make it mm. as good as we could. 
Yeah, because at the end of the day, he's got to sound like Ash and not like a representation of somebody from Arizona. Yeah. So he's yeah. a character, and so it's always going to be individual and distinct. Mm. But I am interested in why why the first person and what the technical issues okay. were. Okay, so um, the, the answer to this is that I haven't actually specified that Ash is male. Right. Do you know, I was <laughs> thinking about that. Yeah. You don't. And I, I suddenly thought, well, do you know, that's really funny. I thought, maybe Bly's female. Yeah. And then I thought, no, no it Bly, says brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't it say two brothers? It says... It says that Bly is Ash's stepbrother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You might so, not want people to know that. I don't know. I don't, we we've been talking a lot. Really about, no, we've been talking a lot about this, and and with my publisher too. And um, very few people have spotted it. All the reviews, no one spotted it. And I, I'm happy for people to know, it and I'm happy to say it. I don't think I should be the person to speak about no. why I did that. No. Because there's many reasons why, and I don't want to say there's one reason why yeah. or specify any of no. them. Um, and I said I was just it was a long period where I was thinking you know could I do it uh, and then we were out in the States staying uh, with our friend Susan Cooper and she of course being a very wise old genius said you know this has been done before Marcus <laughs> and recommended a book to me by Rose McCauley called The Towers of Trebizond mm-hmm. um, which does the same thing mm-hmm. and did it 50, 60 years ago um, mm-hmm. and, and so at that point I thought yeah I can do it why not mm. I think it's good that we don't no, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. that seems oh. to suit the whole context mm, really I agree. well. Yeah. I did want to ask you this one because this was a direct quotation mm-hmm. from one of your philosophers about yes. the limits of my language, mm-hmm. or the limits of my world. Yes. And I did want to ask you whether you felt that you're, I mean, you're obviously a master of language, but do you ever feel that your language is not enough? to express the things that you want to. Yeah, uh, again, this is a subject that we have been talking about a lot uh, at home and I've been talking about to other writers and and people recently um, because I think that's the fundamentally weird thing about writers is that if we could say what we wanted to say in a sentence, we'd say it in a sentence and we can't say it in a sentence so we take 80,000 words to stumblingly approach what we want to say and maybe we don't even really know what we want to say explicitly so I just concluded that the writers are very confused people because if we had much more clarity about this and it's something again uh, that I know has been with me certainly all my adult life of the worry that we never understand each other fully and we know that a lot of communication is non-verbal there's a lot of other signals emotional signals that go into to uh, communicating so it isn't just about the language but even if you just think about the language um and my wife and I know this all too well because being uh, more in speaking American English and me speaking British English, we are still finding, after 10 years, points of difference where we don't understand each other. So, but even, you know, two native speakers of, the, of a language can grow up and even the simplest word has a whole different bunch of connotations around mm. it that will be subtly different from someone else. Mm. So as a writer, I think, you know, maybe you just worry too much about this stuff. You write a book to answer something within yourself but then it is this extraordinary, I mean, it's, I don't want to go over the top and say it's a paradox, but it is fascinating that it means anything to anyone else and mm. that anyone else should be at all interested in what mm. are, after all, just the imaginary products of your own fantasy space. Mm. Why anyone else should read a book and care about it is actually quite startling. Uh, but I think it's because all of us, writers and readers, when you, you have all these books in your house, you're looking for something in there. Mm. you know maybe not just one thing but you know what that thing is will you ever find it 
I think when you read a book that really means something to it, you feel like you've stayed, taken a step closer. And that sense of the writer understood me mm. is really powerful. Mm. And yet, as I said, the irony there is that the writer is just trying to understand themselves. Mm. But, you know, it's good to be honest about this because it isn't arrogant, it isn't selfish. It's yeah. actually necessary that that is how it works, I yeah. think. I mean, I did want to pass this comment uh, mm-hmm. on your work that... You write the books that I feel I want to read more than once, always. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because you get a sense of a writer searching for something through mm-hmm. your books. I think that's possibly why they are all so very different. It's because mm-hmm. you you almost don't find the answers that you're looking yeah. for. I've got to write the, yeah. the next one now. Mm-hmm. And they always feel a bit existential, no matter what it is that mm-hmm. you're writing about. That's quite a strong theme that comes through. I I don't know if you would agree, but I think a lot of people feel that good writing is writing that doesn't give you all the answers. It just, you know, makes you think about some questions because I'm reading this extraordinary interview between Aidan Chambers and Alan Garner from 1974, Mm. this 30-page transcription of this interview, and it touches on all sorts of things. But that has just um, reminded me of one of the things that Alan Garner he makes a really clever but fine distinction between open ends and loose ends. Loose ends being, you know, mistakes and things that you haven't probably considered and open ends being things that are there just to, you know, just to not give that that tight, closed answer because how can there be any single answer to a book? Mm. You know, a book is a question, isn't it? And a book is a question. Maybe that's the question that we should end our interview with. The book is a question. Thank you so much for talking to us in the Reading Corner, Marcus. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues. Just Imagine also has a free fortnightly newsletter packed full of the latest news, CPD training, reviews and giveaways. To sign up, visit justimagine.co.uk forward slash newsletter.